Coming at you from handsome headquarters here in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm Lee Sanger Golden, and you're listening to me talk on the internet. I'm joined, as always, by my illustrious colleague, Ben. How are you doing, buddy? I'm uh, doing all right. Great. So you faring okay during the continued lockdown that we're, we're all experiencing? I am. Haven't, haven't been too many pain points, not getting too much pushback from Oh, okay. Colleagues, but I'm good. All right, cool. Because we can, we, can, we can attack that data offline and then we can reconvene with the rest of the team just to make sure we, we take care of all the low-hanging fruit. All right, that'd be great. I'll loop in some of the essential members to get a nice little win-win here for us. Okay, sounds good. Well, folks, as you may have noticed, today's topic is jargon. What is it? Is it necessary? Or does it spell doom for the language we all know and love? So Ben, you brought this topic to me, I think last week. I thought you had sent me an article, but you didn't. You had just sent me some, some text. Um, but we, we did both uh, read this recent Atlantic article, um, which is a, it's a kind of article that I'm seeing more and more. And they are articles centered around uh, buzzword in the workplace, jargon. Uh, you'll see them on ladders.com or LinkedIn or any of these websites about employment or hiring. They do these, they do these articles, top 10 words to avoid in a job interview. Like, these are the 10 words that your coworkers hate hearing the most. <laughs> Become a whole cottage industry of these shitty websites uh, coming up with these lists. The Atlantic is, you know, a pretty widespread publication. So I thought it was interesting to see something like this in there. Um, so the question that you posed to me, Ben, to start this whole conversation is, it, when it comes to jargon, if you talk to someone 200 years in the future, would the jargon you use be meaningless? Does that sum up sort of what your fundamental philosophical question about jargon was for the day? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I had forgotten until you just mentioned that I texted you last week. Um, but yeah, I was thinking, I was doing it the other way around, where like, if a sentence you just said would have no meaning or make no sense to somebody 200 years ago, then it's probably jargon. Right. Well, there you but go. Yeah. So I think that's interesting, because I was reflecting on, on that <clears throat> comment, and I'm going to have to push back on this comment um, and talk about my specific uh, uh, experience with jargon. And see, um, as most of you probably know from my theatrical way of speak, um, I come from a background in the arts, uh, most specifically in the theater, you know, did dozens of plays over the years as a writer and a director and uh, actor and all these things. And of course there is tons of jargon uh, in theater as, as well as superstitions, traditions, all kinds of things. It is a jargon laden industry. Um, and as annoying as that can be, especially if you're someone who is like, well, I'm not, I'm just doing a play because I thought it would be fun. And then, you know, suddenly you're hanging out with all these theater people and they're using all of these terms. It's kind of annoying. But that being said, most of our jargon comes from ancient Greek theater or uh, Shakespearean theater. Um, so a lot of the jargon we're using, annoying as it is, comes from hundreds and sometimes thousands of, of years ago. So to answer your question, if I went back to had, have a, be, a, a business meeting with some business guys, some uh, business dudes from Elizabethan England, they would have no idea what I'm talking about. 
and they, I, I would probably have no idea what they're talking about. Um, but if I went back and uh, chilled with uh, William Shakespeare, I could probably talk about um, both the drama of the day and also the ancient Greek drama that influenced us both. So, and that points me to other areas where you might consider to be jargon heavy, like um, um, the medical field. We're all talking about doctors and the level of expertise that doctors and nurses bring and how that's kind of being challenged by the current administration. Um, but obviously there's tons of jargon involved in um, the medical field. However, that jargon is based on training. That jargon is based on expertise. The doctors use jargon because they have that shared expertise, training, and experience. So, but businessmen use jargon because there's no actual thing as business expertise. The, the real expertise of business is bullshitting people. And so when we see the actual language of business, it's only in those like leaked emails from the tobacco companies where they talk about how to, you know, get kids. It's, you know, it's about addicting people, getting people. So that's what I think that the obsession with jargon is in the current workplace is a way to build a sense of shared expertise, training and experience where none exists because it's all fundamentally a hustle. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's a good uh, point of distinction. Is it used just for clarity and kind of, you know, people using it, it's not a big deal. We all agree like yeah. these words have meaning. Or is it used to obfuscate and uh, divert attention from malicious actions? Right, right. So that if you know, a, law, a lawsuit ever came out, it's like, well, I never actually said that. It's like, you did, you just invented a bunch of, of phrases that don't say it, but do say it. And that's where, yeah, that's a good right. Answer. Yeah, George Carlin really got at that in a lot of his stand-up, uh, especially in the later years, where he was talking about the end of clarity and specificity in language, how we use euphemisms for everything, um, which is kind of a, a, a separate situation. But I mean, the reason why I know that most jargon is bullshit is because, like I said, I came from the theater, right? Um, and I transitioned out of that world, um, you know, about eight or nine years ago. Obviously, I, I still am engaged in artistic pursuits, but I gained, became more involved in business as a way to like, you know, survive and have nice things and not be poor all the time. Um, and the reason why I know jargon is bullshit is because the jargon that was on the everyone's lips and on the center of every board meeting when I first started in business um, is now completely different than the jargon uh, that is used now. And in fact, those pieces of jargon that were the sort of must-know jargon, everything that you had to know to be a successful person in, in, in my sector back then, are now on the list of the words to, that you should never use. So jargon accumulates, and once it accumulates, it becomes decipherable to a meaningful population. So once this jargon becomes meaningful to a larger population than just inner circles of people in board meetings, it loses its power for those jargon peddlers. So then they cycle it out. And then it, so the list of top 10 words you have to know to be in business become the top 10 words to avoid in the workplace. And then once the jargon becomes a joke, it's out. More than that, 
once the jargon actually becomes language, once it actually becomes used by normal people and it can no longer be used to obfuscate what business people are actually up to, then it gets cycled out. This is not about quirky little bits of language. This is about uh, control of language, I think. And to some extent, the people controlling this kind of language are those with the unearned power that we made a theme in earlier episodes. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I did a little Wikipediaing and, and sort of binging about like jargon, you know, uh, and something that popped up in my Bing search, but I have not been able to back up is is uh, a archaic definition, an ar archaic definition. You know, sometimes when you pull up a definition on the internet, it'll say archaic and then, mm -hmm. be, but it, the problem is that this quote of archaic use of the word jargon does not seem to be attributed to anything. So I don't know where exactly this was used, <clears throat> but the definition was jargon, a form of language regarded as barbarous, debased, or hybrid. Barbarous, debased, or hybrid. So, oh, hybrid of those first two things. Yes. Um, no. Where so, is this definition from? I, you know, I just Googled it or binged it or whatever, and it, and it popped up, but I, I, I didn't have time to figure out exactly where this came from. So I'm on the Wikipedia page on jargon. Yeah, me too. And it was talking about that the earliest use of it in sort of common writing was Canterbury Tales, and uh, Chaucer uh, used it to describe like the chittering of, of right and then apparently the french were using it similarly for just like the sound of like chitter chatter right so it's interesting that like that jargon is sort of even though it's all about sort of like insider status and knowing what's up or whatever jargon itself is defined from the outside in jargon is the the, the term jargon is like the people in the workplace aren't calling these things jargon that's just the language of their, their work. A great example of this is the cloud, okay? So when I say the cloud to you, what does that mean? The cloud, well, I mean, if I step outside, it's the great blue sky. If I'm sitting at a computer, it's what we call the internet and where all of our data is. Exactly. The cloud. So nothing has, as much as computers have advanced uh, in our lifetime and in just the last few years and few months, really, um, fundamentally, like what the internet is, which is an interconnected system of servers, uh, most of which are just humming along in some desert where a DeVry graduate is getting paid $47,000 a year to play Grand Theft Auto while he makes sure that nothing burns down. Mm. That's what the internet is. The internet has been that. And is that and will be that. Obviously, um, the way that uh, those systems work, both technically and in terms of the software, will change and evolve and become more efficient and smaller, et cetera. But it's not like suddenly we took all of those server farms and threw them up into the air and that they all just, all of our data just like exists wirelessly floating around. No, it, it's transmitted that way, but it is, that's not where it lives does not live in the cloud. There is fucking nothing in the cloud except for clouds and, and radio waves and all that kind of stuff. So um, basically what the marketing guys did is they said, all right, well, we're not gonna be able to talk about the security of our you know, data servers to some dumbass uh, business guy. 
Uh, but if we come up with some cool name called the cloud, all your data is in the cloud. Suddenly it becomes something like the business guys are like, oh, if I throw all my money at this cloud, will it keep my data safe and my customers happy? Absolutely. It's the cloud. <laughs> so there's a perfect example. You know, data servers are fucking data servers. And I'm sure someone who is more technically minded than me will come in and be like, well, actually, but you know, fuck that. There is whatever the actual specifics or the technology we use. I know it's not a cloud floating around. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's a perfect example. Like, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't doing any business in the cloud when I was a kid, but I remember like as a kid in the nineties, I remember them talking about the internet as the information superhighway. And that, I think that was the term that Al Gore coined or, or popularized. People were like, Al Gore claimed he, you know, invented the internet. No, I think he just claimed that he coined the term inf information superhighway, mm. which um, we look back and that seems like such a dated 90s term, but it seemed so futuristic at the time. But now if I went into a sales call, if I was a sales guy, well, first of all, I'd kill myself. But second of all, if I was a sales guy and I went in and I was like, listen, we're going to store all your data on the information superhighway. Like people would fucking laugh at me. And if I said, we're going to store all your data in the cloud, they go, uh-huh, yeah, okay, sounds good. And, and I think that in 10 years, if people are still calling it the cloud, something crazy has happened because there's, there's going to be a new, you know, fucking name that they're going to have for, you know, those server farms out in Castaic. Um, so, yeah. Jargon, the chitter-chatter of birds, a form of language regarded as barbarous, debased, or hybrid. Um, anything else you wanted to say about jargon? Um, no, I think it's, let's maybe come back to this one. You know, I might have lost the words for this one. I don't know if that's jargon, but. Uh... Well, it's fun. I, you know, I always, I always love exploring words. I love etymology, you know, going back to where words were born and all that kind of stuff. Etymology, I think, was the first word that I learned in college. And it was an ancient Greek theater class. And um, I guess maybe that warped my mind that I'm coming at everything from such a Western, Westernized uh, uh, perception, Ben. But that's where I'm at. That was um, the first word you learned in college. Wow. I mean, the first word I remember. I, I'm sure I'd heard etymology in class, but it sort of glazed over. But when, like, my cool uh, teacher, Mary Kay Gamble, who wrote this book called Women on the Edge about all of the, like, badass women in, in uh, Greek drama and once sacrificed a goat <laughs> in the forest around our school and then cried to show us what Greek uh, uh, shit was like, uh, this woman was, like, talking about etymology and... Uh, and it really stuck in my brain. This was back when I was a good student, not a, an idiot. Um, great. So let's talk a little bit about what is going on in the world. Um, we have shifted very quickly from the emphasis uh, of this uh, coronavirus response to from shutting everything down to now opening everything up. And I understand that like the sort of crazy libertarians and the, uh, you know, um, in the herd eugenists um, and the Tea Party conspiracy theorists, I understand that they would be for opening up the economy. And I, I even understand that like Trump is sort of would be sort of, even though he's not saying, hey, let's open everything up, he'd be sort of leaning towards giving those folks the benefit of the doubt. What I'm surprised about is... Um, 
Garcetti, um, I, I think he opened up, he's starting to open things up a little bit. Like I know that there are certain businesses that are uh, able to go back into work. And I know in certain states, uh, there's even uh, people going into restaurants. I saw this really cool thing in Amsterdam where people had built the, the, the business, it was a restaurant out by the water and they had um, built like these beautiful two-person greenhouses like these glass houses that they had put around the tables and it actually looked like a really nice romantic place to have a date. And like, you're in this nice little thing and separated it seemed kind of romantic and nice. But yeah, I am, I was surprised that things are starting to open up here in, in California. And I wonder if it's the kind of thing where like Garcetti is like, well, I need to look to the libs. I need to look like, you know, I care about people. So I'm going to shut everything down real tight, but I also don't want to look like I'm just, you know, so hardcore on that side. So I'm going to open up something. So I seem more moderate or I don't seem, you know, anti-business or anything like that. Do you think it's that kind of political calculation or do you think he's actually doing what's sort of best for our city? Well, I think it's, it's partly, partly that, but also just looking at the, the numbers and uh, like 5% of newly created money, it's like $7 yeah. trillion dollars a pittance of that went to municipalities, cities, counties, and states. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know what? I got to make a decision in reality, not in a theoretical right. thing. It's like, yeah, I want to do as much as I can to get, help as many people as possible be uh, safe. But part of safety we know comes from um, being able to put food on the table and staying right. at home. Right. And so it's that, it's that trade-off. And it's like, uh, I think it's still that, continued uncertainty on whether the newly created money will finally start flowing to cities, counties, states that are actually doing all the work rather than, you know, it's not to say that large corporations are doing nothing, but uh, relative to city states and all, they don't, you know, they get paid, you know, when Amazon drops something off, they get paid. So. Well, they're desperately trying to prove to us that we don't need government to solve their problems. Like, no, no, no. We're the answer to your problems. Because, you know, I think what we saw very quickly is sort of like <laughs> deterioration of the mythical uh, invulnerability of capitalism that he was just like, wow, it's this unstoppable force that like, yeah, it has its problems, but like, you can't stop it. Wow. It's like, we saw it just like start to fall apart really quickly. Yeah. And as my, this, but the professor I worked with at Berkeley, as he always said, there's always the element of choosing winners. There's okay. no set, but we don't actually live in anywhere even closely resembling um, a meritocracy or a capitalism. The, the fundamental assumptions of capitalism do not hold and they haven't held since about the mid 1880s. So when you live in a monopolistic with monopolistic tendencies, especially anytime there's crises like this, winners are chosen and those winners have been the biggest and often the baddest players who have yeah. gotten uh, more free money than they actually need. And then additional power because they control where that goes. Yeah. And so city states, people are left, you know, it's like, well, we got to, I guess, do this alone. Mm. And until municipalities and others can create money through having their own banks, you got to just do it through stuff like now. It's like, well, we got to reopen things because um, that's the cold, hard truth we gotta, that we got to deal with right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, certainly. Like, I, I want things to open up. I want to go back to big five, man. I... <laughs> It's funny, yeah. The things that the things that I miss, like I miss big five sporting goods. Um, 
That's it. That's the only business I wanted to reopen. Just a big five. I never even knew you went there. You never Dude, me. I go there all the time, man. It's like get weights and BB guns and exercise clothes. It's the best. It's the best. I, I, I have this, this rule, Ben, and uh, this is my capitalist rule. And it's something I learned from my parents. And it's something I've passed on to my wife. And hopefully we'll have children and I'll pass it on to them. And that is um, if we're in a bookstore or a sporting goods store, within reason, I'll buy you whatever you want. Hmm. You know, if we're at the, you know, if we're at Target and it's like, hey, we want to buy the, you know, this new juicer that is $500 and is too big for our counter, I'm probably going to be like, no. But if we're at the, if we're at a bookstore and my wife's like, I'd love to like get this book about how to do whatever. I'm like, 100%, let's get it. Or, exactly. you know. If uh, I'm at Sporting Goods Store, my, my son or daughter's like, I want a baseball bat. I'd be like, fuck yeah, let's get a baseball bat. Um, so yeah, I do, I do want uh, uh, my, 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 boys, my boys and girls at Big Five to, to, to reopen. Um, and um, it sort of points to the fact that like Target gets to stay open because they're an essential service because they sell you know, shitty groceries, but they're also selling toys and electronics. And, exactly. Uh, and that's like those the two, yeah. It's like the paint stores are closed, but Home Depot sells paint. Right, but Big Five can't stay open, even though uh, they sell pretty much they sell very similar products to certain sections of Target. And I would say a sporting goods store right now is like super important because they also have like camping equipment and all that kind of stuff. So if there's an earthquake or some sort of disaster that accentuates what's going on right now, you're going to want to have, uh, you know, a little propane stove or a sleeping bag or something. So. You think Pete Rose is available now to talk about this? Pete Rose? I guess. Remember we talked to him like a month ago? Do you think he's, what is he doing? Pete Rose, uh, actually Pete Rose is in the news. Pete Rose is in the news because uh, he was caught corking his ball. Um, and Okay, now we're gonna spend another. We're gonna do another episode where it's half an hour of like Lee explaining some baseball shit to Ben. Um, But yeah, uh, what did we talk about last time? That was uh, a stealing base, stealing signs, stealing signs, right? Okay, so a new baseball thing is corking. This this is not new. Obviously, this has been going on for a hundred years at least. Uh, But um, new to the program, new to the news, uh, is a revelation that. and I think this was up in Montreal. This was when uh, Pete was with the Montreal Expos, which was a Canadian expansion team to the MLB, which no longer exists. And now they have the Toronto Blue Jays up there. But back in the day, Expos and one of their big early stars was Charlie Hustle himself, Pete Rose. Um, and uh, who you called, I think, Charlie Rose in the last interview. It is confusing. His name's Charlie Hustle and also Pete Rose. Um, so... Yeah, maybe when Steven comes in here, since he is in the uh, the sports industry, uh, maybe he can have some comments on this. But basically what happened is he was when he was at the Expos, somebody was um, in the bowels of the ballpark and they came across someone who was carving on a baseball bat. And the guy was like, well, what the fuck's that? And they're like, oh, that's Pete Rose's bat. They're corking it. So basically what a... Uh, what a, a baseball bat is, is a big hunk of wood. You can't use aluminum bats or anything like that. I mean, if you were, uh, you know, Jose Canseco in 1991 and you took an aluminum bat up to the fucking plate, you would blast that thing from Oakland into Merced. Um, but of course, you have to use this big hulking 
that. So what corking does, and again, I'm not a sportsman, so I'm probably fucking this up. Uh, but what corking means is you hollow out a certain bit of the bat, which um, makes it uh, easier to to have the ball go uh, further. So, um, and apparently it was common knowledge up there in Montreal that uh, Pete Rose corked his bat or had someone cork his bat. So he's back in the news. So not only has our man, uh, Charlie Hustle, uh, what was he betting on himself and all this stuff? Yeah. He was also corking his bat. So, so yeah, he's back in the news. I mean, look, yeah, let, yeah let, let's talk a little bit about sports because uh, we have South Korean baseball right now. It's the only form of baseball we have. And I know that uh, there is a sadness in my heart not seeing my – my favorite sport being played. Did you grow up in a baseball house? Did you, was your mom or dad a baseball fan? No, we did soccer, basketball, and then I started being a runner early on okay. too, and, and cycling. But um, it was mainly the basketball. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not into uh, baseball because of its athletics. Like, if I was going to be into a sport, it would be basketball basketball is a way better sport than baseball for me it's the culture of baseball the idea of you go and you sit in a park and you have a drink and you have a snack and you chill and you, you talk to strangers and then like sometimes it's happy and you're you're chanting and like and laughing and screaming and sometimes it's sad and you're angry and you're yelling and like um yeah i just i, I the whole pageantry of baseball and the the whole experience of being a baseball fan is a has always been a, a part of my spring, summer, and fall. And to see that not happening right now, um, it, it makes me sad. We're a house divided. My, my wife is a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, and I'm an Oakland Athletics fan. So um, we're in different leagues, uh, National League and American League. Uh, but, you know, we have some cross love there. And it's a, it's a big part of our life. Going to going to the ballpark, and you know we'll go with with my family, with her family. Uh, we were there at the playoffs last year at the Dodgers. <laughs> we were actually at the game where the Dodgers got knocked out of the playoffs, and it was awesome <laughs> because we we were in these like horrible seats. I forget that's called like it's called like shit reserved seating, and it is like these horrible bench seats. It's like uh, you're literally just ass to ass with the person next to you. Um, you don't get your own chair. You're just like on a bench. And uh, there's also like cafeteria style all you can eat food, which is basically like a line where you can just grab multiple hot dogs, popcorns, and uh, I forget what the dessert is, but you just can get unlimited basic ballpark food. And it is disgusting. And I was having a horrible time because it was just like horrible, grotesque, like orc people just like, you know, uh, elbowing each other out of the way to get shitty hot dogs and complaining that one guy got three hot dogs and I only got two. And then it's just like, people are drunk. It smells like beer. And then we're like, I'm sitting ass to ass with these other guys. And, um, and like, I, you know, I like the Dodgers. I would have liked to see them win. But like I said, I'm an Oakland athletics fan and the moment, and, and it looked like they were going to win. And uh, the moment that the game became tied up, this, um, this Paul just went over the entire ballpark and you could just hear thousands of people suddenly go, Oh shit, we might not go to the world series. Uh, fuck. And uh, my wife looked over at me and she's like, 
you're fucking smiling. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is fun. <laughs> and uh, as the night went on, there was a little kid next to me who was doing, who's literally praying to Jesus. Uh, there was people screaming and yelling and like from, and I was having such a miserable time at the ballpark that after that, and then after that, I was having a great time. So, uh, you know, I miss that. And, um, and I'm sure the ball players miss that. I mean, can you imagine being, you're going into your 27 season, you're 27 years old. You're going into your season, and uh, this is going to be your fucking year. And this goes for, like, Olympians and other athletes, too. This is going to be your fucking year. And then you're told that, like, uh, baseball is calling out sick. That must fucking suck. Mm, I know. Well, I mean, yeah. The thing is, though, they could still... I mean, what really sucks is like the idea, like you could still play the game without people watching, but it's run. A lot of these decisions aren't necessarily made by the, the people playing the sport. It's people owning the teams and the rights to the, the flow of right. money. So, I mean, but it doesn't stop. Or maybe they do have contractual agreements where they're not allowed to actually go out and just play some baseball on their own. Maybe they, they can't do that. I don't know. But it's like, you know, pending those agreements, which they could say, fuck it. They go out and play a game of baseball with their friends, yeah. you know? I think we're going to see something. I think we're going to see something like that. I think we're going to see, uh, you know, someone coming out and be like, we're going to play a game with the kids or whatever. And people are going to get like temperature scans and then they're going to be able to like, you know, go to play a game with one of the sportsmen or something like that. They're, they're going to have to have something to, to keep things alive. We can't just be watching like classic videos of Ozzy Davis doing flips and, uh, and, and call it a season. Right. Um, so anyway, well, I mean, I don't see why not. Yeah, no, I'm always down to watch the wizard of Oz do flips on AstroTurf. That's fucking cool. We're going to be right back in a second. We're going to be joined by an old friend of both of us, Steve. And we're back talking on the internet with Ben and Lee. We are joined remotely by your friend and mine, Steve. How you doing, sir? What's going on? Well, welcome to Talk on the Internet. This is our show. What we do is we talk on the internet about whatever the fuck we want. And um, gosh, it's such a, it's such a pleasure having you. Are, are you still in New York, Steve? I'm still in New York amidst the, uh, the pandemic. Damn. So are you are you working remote? I am working remote. Yeah. Do you usually work at MSG? That's, are you usually at MSG? That is correct. I'm still at MSG. Damn. So uh, for those who not in the know, who aren't sports fans like me, uh, that is Madison Square Garden, which is one of the most famous uh, uh, sports arenas in the country and uh, in fact the world. Uh, and I think it's the only place where they have a jersey with Elton John and Billy Joel uh, hanging next to the jerseys of the actual sports people. Is that correct? Yeah, Billy Joel. If, uh, if you come to the garden, you might be able to catch his unprecedented 127th show. It's really quite, quite the, Damn. Uh, the same. Damn. Wow. I wish I had a great little sports trivia. Like, that's more games than XYZ player, but I don't it, know. It actually so. I think, he, I think he holds the record actually for the most consecutive concerts at one or the, the, the arena holds the record for the most consecutive um, performances by one artist. 
something unprecedented. So both Mr. Joel and also the facility itself both have like a kind of a concurrent record related to the same, the same run, basically. I guess so. So do you work directly for the NBA? Yeah, so I work uh, directly for the Knicks. So I'm the um, associate creative director for the Knicks creative team. Nice. So it technically is for the NBA, but uh, we, we are a, we work for the Madison Square Garden company. So, so a creative like Harlem Globetrotters, like how to spruce up the game a bit, bit, make it a little more exciting? A little bit. We've been working on their whistle, actually, for the last few months now. <laughs> Oh, wow. Nice. It is a, it's a classic whistle. So basically, okay. So Steve, you basically have uh, the job that a guy in like a romantic comedy about a cool guy in New York would have. <laughs> yeah, totally. Where it's like, it's a smart guy job, but it's like also a sports job. You know what I mean? And it's also like a famous thing job. It's basically hits all of the, all of the, the corners of creativity, coolness, sports. And then it's also like in New York. It's true, man. There's there are a lot of perks to uh, the optics of the job, if you will. But uh, all I can say is all that is uh, glitter does not shine. Right. Yeah. Mm. So, um, gosh, the last time I was at MSG was uh, fan appreciation night, which was funny because I this was the only Knicks game I went to when I was living in New York. But it was fan appreciation night, and as you probably know, they give out like unlimited food and so you can just be eating pizza burgers hot dogs like you can just eat 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 for three hours and i remember at one point there's this guy there's this guy behind me and he said um if it's free why would you ever stop eating and uh, gosh that that quote has stayed with me for so many years and uh i, I feel like it applies to so many different eras areas of life um but anyway you digress I digress. So we were just talking about, um, you know, like sort of how the sports world is surviving during this like crazy time and like how the news stories about sports are, oh, hey, 30 years ago, Pete Rose was corking his bats. What does everyone feel about that? <laughs> like there's no actual news coming out. There's no actual games to watch. So like, so how, how do you how do you feel? I mean, you, you work in, in a sector that's so important to like, the American character. I mean, is this a moment that's going to change everything? I think that sports, this shows the importance of sports to people. And I, I think I jumped in on the end of your conversation. We can only watch highlights for so long here, reruns. Um, there's going to be a fundamental change coming out of this, of how people congregate together. And obviously at the center of that, section is sports and entertainment. Um, I can tell you right now that the teams are working mm -hmm. on contingency plans for um, games with no fans. And ultimately after that, mm -hmm. you know, you can sell the shit out of a product. You can put whatever stamp of approval you want on it. But uh, I think this is going beyond people's fears at this point. And something is going to have to be, I mean, the only thing that, that really is going to warrant change is, is a vaccine. And I think I saw a poll that people will not return yeah. to professional sports to watch professional sports until there is a vaccine. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think you nailed it on the head right at the beginning there when you said it reveals the importance uh, of sports in, in human life. It, you know, sports is the thing that it's on TV in the background. It's the section of the newspaper. It's the little bit of conversation that you have. It doesn't necessarily seem like it's so important, but it is this like everyday part of life. And then when it goes away, you're like, whoa, this, this big hole in my life is, is, is missing. And, you know, I was just talking about that because like during the summer and, and spring and, and hopefully in the fall, if your team's doing well, going to baseball games is like so important to my life to have that go away. Just this fucking sucks. And MSG is just like such a essential part of, uh, New York, um, like just the the character of New York that it's uh, it's a shame to think that uh, that the lights are out right now. I mean, I assume there's, there's some guy out there with whatever the <laughs> NBA ver- version of a Zamboni is just <laughs> wiping the floor or something. But well, it, it's funny. The uh, uh, apparently hockey is actually coming back soon, very soon, sooner rather than later. Uh, so oh, I've nice. been, you know, the M- Madison Square Garden owns the Rangers as well. So I've been brought in on some Ranger stuff. Um, oh, that's good. So we're trying to figure out what's our what's our hockey is back campaign, and the the kind of strategic thinking. The inside here is like, if it's the first sport back, we might be able to wrangle in some fans who aren't initially hockey fans. Like, yeah. I, I thought a tagline would be funny that it was like, the hockey's back. At least it's something to watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. You heard it here, folks. And I know a lot of people don't know. Yeah, hockey is like one of those games that, like, uh, I always feel like it's a fun game to uh, to play a video game of because you can beat up a guy. But yeah, I, I don't see um, it as like uh, in in the in, in America. I mean, United States of America as like this pervasive force as much as nba uh and and football and baseball um but i do see it as emergent you know similar to the way that soccer is emergent as a as a mainstream um sport in the united states and i think a lot of that has to do awesomely with immigrant families like you know uh my father-in-law he's from iran and in iran they play soccer so you know my wife she grew up playing soccer and not softball or whatever so um but this might be the moment for for hockey to emerge triumphant Hmm. I'll watch it. I always love watching it. So yeah, in, in general, you know, we have a lot of colleagues out in New York right now. What, what's your experience been in the lockdown? Are you on the island or are you out in one of the boroughs? No, I'm in, uh, I'm in Manhattan. There you go. Yeah. Burrowing on the island of Manhattan. There you go. Yeah. When I lived in New York, I insisted on living in Manhattan because, you know, like as someone who grew up in Walnut Creek, I knew that if I said, oh, I lived in San Francisco, people would call bullshit on me. Um, so yeah. I'm glad that you're you're on the island. Not that hey, not that my friends in Queens and Bronx are not in the Bronx and Brooklyn are not true New Yorkers. But I'm glad to hear that that you're you're there on Manhattan, baby. Um, yeah. So what's the experience been like? It's been tough. Um, I mean, it's listen. It's been tough for everybody, right? Everybody's feeling the same effects as as one another. The the feelings of loneliness and isolation. Um, what sets New York and California apart is the fact that uh, we're in tiny little apartments here and we don't have backyards and we have 40 degree weather still happening right now and we're stacked on top of each other. So it is, it's difficult. It's very difficult here, especially in the city with 
not a lot of space. And the elevators and the buttons and like everything that you're just, you realize how much you have to like touch and, and uh, brush against. <laughs> I remember my first, my first morning commute in New York, uh, we, we got, I, I, I got in, uh, in the train car and uh, there was this young woman in front of me and I was basically dry humping her up the asshole. <laughs> and like, uh, I, I, I think that um, looking back, like that kind of life where everyone is just sort of like dry humping each other uh, is, is never going to go back to normal. Um, but anyway, you know, maybe we should, let, let's, let's take a step back. And because um, this, this trio we have on the phone here, it's just interesting how we all sort of came together. We were in a play called Caesar Antichrist by a uh, oh, famous right. French playwright named Alfred Jarry. And uh, we were wearing like dance belts and like skin tight clothing with like ancient French symbols on them. And we were just like dancing around <laughs> to this like, crazy stuff. And it, it, it's funny that we're talking about sports because you know one of the reasons why theater can be great is because, um, especially if you're a young dork like I was, it's an opportunity to like, hang out with girls and like get used to like being able to talk to people. And um, the thing about Caesar Antichrist was the only play I was in where the entire cast was all men. Right. And I remember coming in and then right. there was the assistant directors and uh, they, they were, they were women and that was it. There's no one. In the, and I remember like, it's sort of like turned into this like football team in a way. Uh, and we all started calling each other by our last names, which I've never seen in a play. So it was like, <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a lot of camaraderie there. And then I, I switched roles in the, I don't know if it was the next play we did, but, um, a couple plays later, um, we, I directed wrote and directed a musical and you played my dad. And, um, Ooh. it's just, it's just crazy. So, um, and then Ben, Comes you still in. owe me that DVD. What's that? You still owe me that DVD. I don't even, dude, I don't even have the DVD. Dory's brother. <laughs> you got to fucking dig it up, man. That's gold. I know. Yeah, I mean, I yeah you got time. Go do it. <laughs> yeah, let's go get it right now. Um, I think he's back from Israel. Um, so, yeah, we, were, we did this crazy play. You played my pot-smoking dad. Uh, for those who have uh, listened to this show for a while, you've probably heard my dad on this show and his his cool stoned jewish dorkiness and uh steven you you nailed the role i mean i think you were a fan favorite uh you had some great stunt choreography some good laugh lines that you just fucking nailed you had an awesome painted on stage mustache and uh just a very memorable uh a memorable role and uh and so it was crazy years later when this, this goofball walks into my office expecting a job and his name is Ben Gordon and he knows you and he thinks that because you and I are pals and that you played my dad, that I would just give him this job. So against all of my, <laughs> and against all of my recommendations, they did hire this man. Oh, no, you were, they said, but you didn't actually know I was not. You didn't actually hire him, did you? No, I didn't. I I did get to interview him. I think as part of a group interview, and I was definitely on the the group of yeah, hire this guy because oh, so I will no longer be the weirdest Jew in the office. I seem positively normal now. It's great. 
Yeah. And, you know, we all have a reason why we do things and you do them for incredibly selfish reasons. Just, uh, <laughs> you know, you are who you are, but you, know, you don't have to apologize for it or anything. Okay, good. But uh, you got me a job. I've got a, a check comes every couple of weeks from... An from talk person. on the internet. <laughs> from talk on the internet. Uh, there's all zeros. I've never seen any other number but zero, but at least I get the check. All right, good. Week. I should start doing that. I should get my own like company checkbook for this podcast and start writing people's zero or like five cent yeah. checks. No, do zero. Just we'll see. But let's send Steve. We should send him a speaker fee. Yeah. Oh, that's good. An honorarium. Zero dollars. An honorarium. Zeroed out. Everything is zeroed out. That can be the name of our. Yeah. Hey. It. Anything helps during the pandemic. We're going to start, just like our president, we're going to start sending out $0 checks to, to Americans across the country to stimulate the economy by wasting mm -hmm. paper. Yeah, it's great. So, Steve, today's topic we were talking about earlier is uh, jargon. And, you know, we, we started with the question of if you talk to someone 200 years in the future using the jargon of today, would they know what you're talking about? And um, so I kind of agree with that that statement but but going back to theater i was saying like because a lot of the theater jargon goes back to ancient greece or to elizabethan england that that jargon actually kind of remains in place so um but i want to know in in your world what are some of like the best and worst pieces of jargon that you hear thrown around in the sort of like creative side of the sports industry oh man there's so much you know they make those videos of like here's what it Here's what it sounds like inside of like a, <laughs> a creative office. Um, I don't know, man. We uh, we use words like marketing and advertising and selling, and we even say stuff like tickets and uh, seats available now. Um, oh. We'll even put up stuff like buy tickets and um, come see the mix. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, we, we try to push the boundaries. Man, aren't Yeah, you... we really try to push the boundaries. Could you explain to us what those, I don't know what those words or those phrases mean. Give me like, what is, well, it, what is a ticket? That's when a cop makes you spend money because of something you did wrong. Right? So you guys are issuing tickets to Knicks fan and making them, them pay for infractions? Jeez. <laughs> if only, man. If only, you know, there are words that, you know, we, we marketing people use. Some of us are creators. Some of us are marketers. And, you know, these are words that we use to, to create change in our world. And nice. it's something that, that has deep impact in our society. Hell yeah. Do any of your coworkers or you ever take Upright Citizens Brigade classes and bring some of that like comedy jargon in? Because I, I know when I was taking classes at UCB, there was there would always be like a couple people who were like advertising people that were like coming in to learn new creative pathways or something like that. I honestly, I, I try to uh, get as much comedy into my writing as possible. Um, sometimes it's called for, sometimes it's not. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely my my tone of voice, so nice. doesn't doesn't always reflect the brand. Well, commercials have just become like you know, advertising has just become sketch comedy now. Like, like every every commercial you see is just like it's just a sketch. 
And, uh, and I see that as I think a lot of people do go off and like take comedy classes and improv classes and learn things like what's the game and bring that into, uh, into advertisements. So in some ways it's cool because there's like, there's funny things. And then, and then in, in other ways it's not because, you know, if I saw flow from progressive on the street, you know, I might scream at her and point shame. Um, but I'm glad that someone like you who is actually funny is uh, working in that, that sector. Uh, it makes me feel okay. Um, so thank, thank you for your service. During these times, we're all heroes. And I think that's the most important thing that we can do is while we're sitting at home retaining our jobs, call each other heroes. Mm, that's, a, that's a heroic, <laughs> that is a heroic effort to get that done, but I will take on this Herculean okay, task. And I feel very brave. <laughs> For admitting that, and I think you guys that is, uh, too. You've always been a brave one. Not. What was that, Steve? I've, I've really been earning my stimulus. Oh, yeah. Um, there's been a lot of stimulus. Hell, yeah. So apparently we're getting these, these checks from the government that are supposed to, like, get us through the, the crisis. Um, and on one hand, like, I'm glad that we're getting this check because... Uh, it's going, my, my wife, she does have a job, but she, she did, her magazine did fold. So she had to transition out of that. So there was like a fans transitional financial period. And I think this will sort of help bridge the gap. That being said, like my instinct is immediately like, Oh, I should save this and put this in a savings account, which brings the question of like, do I deserve this? If that's because the whole point is to stimulate the economy is to spend that money and the whole point is to uh give people who don't have jobs the, the the money and um but then there's these programs that are like well you can just donate your check and i'm like mm, i'm a good enough person to point out that this is probably not the best way to do it but i'm not a good enough person that i'm not just going to save that money so i can hopefully buy a house and have more privilege for the rest of my life so um i have not received my check but when I do, it's going to be a, a big battle of like, do I donate this or do I just keep it? Because I'm not going to spend it. I'm certainly not going to use it for the reason it is being sent out. So before all of this crazy lockdown went down, <laughs> how was your life going in, in New York, Steve? Pretty good. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with the term um, swinger? Swi oh, you were swinging? Like, no, I was just curious if guys were familiar with the term. Uh, like baseball? Like you're a... Or you're a guy in the 70s uh, who's letting someone fuck your wife? <laughs> oh, that kind. I knew it. No, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not sure oh, okay. where you guys are going with that. But, um, <laughs> life, is, uh, life is good. I just moved in with my girlfriend. Nice. Here on the, uh, here on the island of Manhattan. And... Um, you know, it was just starting to, the weather was just so amazingly turning from 20 degrees to 30 degrees. The, uh, the anticipation of summer was palpable. Mm. And then, um, then we were all told to go play inside. Ugh. I love summer in New York. People shit on summer in New York because like, it's so, it's so humid, but I love summer in New York. And, uh, and people get annoyed that like, there's like all the tourists and stuff, but I think that's okay. I really do. I mean, I don't know. I think fall in New York is probably the best season. I mean, I'm going to go with that just because I fell in love with my wife, you know, in fall in New York. But I feel like the temperature's good. The city looks great. Like everyone's recovering from the heat and sort of getting ready for the holidays. 
Um, but yeah, I can imagine like just being ready for summer in New York and then just losing that just must be miserable because out here in California, like I'm still feeling like pretty summery. Like I'm wearing shorts and I can still go for a walk or a jog and stuff like that. I'm not going to the beach or anything, but, um, yeah, it must be, it must be rough, especially just, you know, even if you have a nice apartment in New York, like I'm sure you do it, you're still like, you know, penned up, so to speak. Yeah, I had a nice commute, though, yesterday. I ended up going from my bedroom to the living room, which was pretty nice. <laughs> so we, uh, we survived. Nice. Do you guys have any pets? We don't. Mm. Yeah, I never I, – I, I, I never wanted to be a New York pet person. I mean, I love pets and stuff. I just felt like it, it, it's, it's kind of too hard on the animal unless it's like an old cat that just wants to sit in the window anyway. But yeah, any, any other things that you wanted to express to our you know, extensive uh, listenership before you go to your hey, man. dinner? You guys are out in California. Just be real, realizing how good you have it out there. And I do mean that. Thank you. Well, I, I'm glad that New York has you, Stephen, as much as we miss you out here, because you bring like such a, a chill California vibe to things, but without, but you're not like that, that like over chill California, like stereotype. You, you have the perfect balance of being able to be like the like cool urban dude, but also bring that California chillness. So I, I just hope that you keep it. Oh, really? And I hope that we get to check in with you soon. And um, I'm glad that the, that the will of the universe has brought the three of us together. Mm. The will. You got it. Well, be safe and eat your vitamins. Yes, sir. Handfuls of vitamins. <laughs> I actually ate vitamins yesterday and they made me sick and my stomach still hurts from them. So I'm probably going to do like minerals, just like starting eating dirt. Yeah. Well, kale's pretty close. Kale is. The new dirt. <laughs> Kale, the new dirt. There you go. Um, hey, is that uh, is Ben still on the call? No. Oh, he had to hop off. He uh, he he had to just get some buy-in just to figure out the optics on this um, pitch deck we're working on. Yeah, we're gonna interrogate the data later. Yeah, we're gonna super. Well, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Be well. Be safe. And uh, hope to talk to you guys soon. Likewise, buddy. Well, thanks. All right, amigos. All right. Ciao. Well, thanks for joining us today, everybody. Ben, any final thoughts before we uh, before we move on with our lives? Uh, no, as they say, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> well, let's hope it doesn't last for long. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to all of those folks out there in the world. I, like I said, I, I love looking at our maps of the different countries where people are listening to us, and I think it's, I think it's fun. So, um, if you have anything you want to talk to us about, please email me at buyhustle at gmail .com, As in, you can buy a new stadium, but you can't buy a hustle. Uh, or hit me up on the gram at internet batman. Uh, so, in the meantime, for Lee, for Ben, and for Steve. You're listening to us talk on the internet.